Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. While providers are constantly balancing the risk of solid organ transplant rejection with the risk of opportunistic infections, advances in immunosuppression and infection prophylaxis have resulted in transplant patients living longer. And when that happens, other issues such as cardiovascular complications arise. Treating disease states like hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and anticoagulation in transplant patients requires special considerations. Today, one of Mayo Clinic's transplant pharmacy specialists, Dr. Stacy Bernard, walks us through these challenges and gives us a breath of fresh care in heart health after organ transplantation. Usually when we think of solid organ transplant, we think of the immune system, immunosuppression, weighing the balance between rejection and infection. However, today we're gonna to go a little bit further. As our immunosuppression gets stronger and stronger and our opportunistic infection prophylaxis becomes uh, better understood and where the place is for that, we're seeing this arguably less and less. And with these patients living longer, the clinicians having to turn and look at other issues that are cropping up, such as cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease is actually the number one cause of death among kidney transplant patients, the number three cause of death among liver transplant recipients. And for heart patients living out past 10 years, over 50% will have cardiac allograft vasculopathy, which is a unique form of heart disease that affects heart transplants. Now, because of this, we're going to spend today talking about the antihypertensives, um, dyslipidemia, and anticoagulation treatment of transplant patients. And it's an area that I get excited to talk about, and I hope you guys will share my enthusiasm because it's so dynamic. And the issues that we face pre-transplant, immediately post-transplant, and longitudinally post-transplant all vary. So my hope for you is that you'll better understand and have the, I guess, the logistical framework to think about what kind of organ your patient received or is receiving, where they are post-transplant, what their journey's been like, what's driving these changes, and then coming up with appropriate therapy recommendations to treat them because here's a little spoiler alert, we don't have robust guidelines. Our journey will look a bit like this. Hypertension first, then hyperlipidemia, then just briefly touching on anticoagulation. It is a lot to unpack in 35 minutes. I am the first to admit that. So I'll do my best, um, you know, buckle in because I'm probably going to go pretty speedy. I'm going to try and focus on kidney, liver, and heart transplant patients as those are the three that by volume you're the most likely to exchange care with. Starting first with hypertension. Some may not realize this, but there's upwards to a 70 to 98% incidence of hypertension reported among transplant recipients looking at all organs. It's a substantial non-immunologic risk factor, which directly relates to patient survival. There's many contributing factors. Some are specific to the organ transplant that the patient received, and some may be related to the native organs, which the patient did not have transplanted, that failed, or that were part of the body as the other organs were failing, or they may be driven by the transplanted organ itself. Medication-related factors also play into the picture, 
And like I said, no major guidelines or studies exist. Looking at hypertension after kidney transplant. It, is, it can be from the native kidneys. So let's just start there. Some people don't realize it's, it, that the native kidneys stay in place for the majority of kidney transplants. It's a heterotopic transplant, meaning a new kidney goes into a new location, not an orthotopic transplant, meaning that the old organs are taken out like a heart. <coughs> the old organ is taken out and a new one is put in. So you still have those native kidneys, and they actually do still provide feedback to the body. Hypertension can be driven from them despite the fact that they're not filtering urine. It can be allograft related. Donor age, as the donor age increases or a donor has a family history of hypertension, those patients are more likely to have hypertension after the fact. It can be allograft dysfunction, particularly think kidney transplants. It's just like native kidneys in a picture of CKD, whereas the patient's renal function declines, hypertension can become problematic. Transplant renal artery stenosis is something more specific. It tends to be earlier post-transplant, two months to three years statistically, but can occur at any time post-transplant glomerulonephritis, and of course, the medication-related causes. Now, given that this is a pharmacy grand rounds, we're gonna talk a little bit more about these up front because these medication-related causes are going to continue to cycle back throughout the next 30 minutes. So starting first with the calcineurin inhibitors. Acutely, when you start these immediately after transplant, they cause arteriolar vasospasm, and you get this hypoperfusion of the kidneys due to an increase in systemic vascular resistance. Chronically, they cause enhanced sodium resorption in the renal tubules and sympathetic overactivity, which confounds that vasoconstrictive picture. This is one of the reasons why they're contraindicated with NSAIDs, which also cause um, vasoconstriction. Over the course of time, you'll see on biopsy something that's referred to as calcineurin inhibitor nephrotoxicity, and I would have to phone my pathology friends to completely describe to you what that means, but it is evident by by the way the bi biopsy stains, that it's a calcineurin cause. Steroids um, will affect some patients, not necessarily as many as calcineurin inhibitors, as they can be removed from some patients, but that's via the sodium and water absorption and activation of the glucocorticoid receptors on um, smooth muscles. Interestingly, patients who have pre-existing hypertension prior to transplant seem to be more sensitive to steroids and the hypertension that they can cause post-transplant. Moving on to liver transplant, up to 99% of patients have hypertension in some series. Now, I can say, I don't know that I think that's completely accurate, but greater than one in two, greater than that 50%, surely. The liver picture is quite interesting. Pre-transplant, you get this vasodilatory state, which reduces arterial, excuse me, arterial pressures, leading to hyperdynamic cardiac output. Then you put this new graft in. And that post-transplant portal vascular decompression, it reverses the vasodilatory state, but not all feedback loops are immediately reversible. You get an increased SVR, elevated plasma endothelin-1, and increased arterial stiffness within the vasculature, even post-transplant. Later on, you have issues with RAS activation, and you can also have um, reports of the reversal of normal nocturnal decrease in blood pressure. So we usually get this dip in our blood pressure at night when we sleep. It's been reported in liver transplants, but I can surely say it's, it's a multi-organ issue that um, nocturnal hypertension is not uncommon and not singular just to liver transplants, unfortunately. Hypertension after heart transplant. Now, heart transplant and cardiovascular could probably be an entire day lecture all on its own. Um, so I'll try and stick with the nuts and bolts for you guys, but if you have specific questions, please, um, you can wait till the end or ask as we go either way. 
Hypertension after heart transplant is, again, even more in that greater than one out of every two, 70 to 98% of survivors at 10 years. Older recipients are more sensitive to this than their younger counterparts, and those with renal dysfunction going in having a confounding factor. This mixed picture presentation is exceedingly common, especially if you work in a hospital setting where these aren't your healthy patients, these are your sick ones, um, having you know concomitant hypertension with CKD and hepatic dysfunction in a transplant patient is not at all unheard of. And what we do with that information obviously can't be covered by one singular guideline. So we have to juggle it. And we as pharmacists do that frequently um, every day. So early post-transplant, the changes that cause hypertension are largely related, to largely related to intravascular volume and, again, a persistently elevated systemic vascular resistance. Later on, we see those medication causes being our predominant cause. The reason why trans um, heart transplant patients, unlike their abdominal or kidney and liver counterparts, happen to um, need greater levels of immunosuppression over the long term. So we don't get to run our tacrolimus level down to three or five. We have to keep it upwards, you know, of seven to 10 or so. And the greater the exposure, the greater the chance of that side effect of hypertension. Now, mTORs is something that's of particular interest and gets a lot of exposure with heart transplant because of their antiproliferative nature. So a lot of you might recognize that because it's a drug used in oncology because it is an antiproliferative. We steal it from transplant. We like to steal things from oncology and transplant. And we steal this one because because cardiac allograft vasculopathy, which is kind of like a concentric plaque in the transplanted heart, not singular like we would go in and do a stent, but concentric narrowing of the vessel that's um, imm immunologic and basis for how it accrues. mTORs work to fend that off. So you might think, well, mTORs have less renal compromise. I remember learning that. Um, could we just switch the patient to an mTOR? So you, you know, your team asks you, and you as an astute pharmacist look it up. So you look up everolimus. But unfortunately, you see hypertension has a 30% incidence in kidney transplant and 17% incidence in liver transplant. You think, oh, okay, I wonder how that is, just because you have a curious mind. So you dig a little deeper. What you discover is not an example of how mTORs cause hypertension, but rather that the studies from which these statistics were pulled included cyclosporin. I use this as an example to, that you can apply to many situations. In transplant, always double check the initial answer you found because the studies vary. The agents are almost never monotherapy, so you'll get these combinations of agents. And depending on the side effect profile of one, the other may just get strapped with that same side effect when it doesn't mechanistically make sense. Double check, you'll either feel confident because you'll have double-checked and you'll found the same thing twice, or you will have prevented an error. What do we do about this? Well, if we follow JNC8, we'll treat to a blood pressure goal of less than 130 over 80, the definition of hypertension being greater than that. Depending on if it's a low or a high cardiovascular risk, which transplant patients were unfortunately excluded from those um, equations, but using our clinical judgment, determining that, Either lifestyle changes or lifestyle changes in medication are advised. Lifestyle changes being uh, the DASH diet, uh, exercise, decreased sodium, and increased potassium. But unfortunately, you're going to usually be out of luck with that last recommendation due to the transplant patient's tendency toward hyperkalemia because of the calcineurin inhibitors and Bactrim fits early post-transplant. 
So treatment's not a one-size-fits-all model. I would argue that as we are having patients wait longer and longer for organs, and our technological advances are such that we're able to keep them alive, but their other organs are taking a hit as well, and then, you know, take a VAD to transplant, and other organ systems are, are take, having an impact on this as well, and then we're finally able to get a heart transplant and replace the pump. Well, that's a singular organ. The rest of the body is still what it was going into transplant, and with time, we hope that it will correct, but it's not always able to do so. So depending on the concomitant disease states with the transplant recipient, something like CKD, hepatic dysfunction, or allograft dysfunction of the allograft should be considered. If it's a heart transplant, the uh, cardiac allograft vasculopathy would also be something. Now you might think CKD and solid organ transplant. That's kidneys, right? It is not. It affects all transplant patients. In this uh, New England Journal of Medicine article by Ojo, almost 15 years ago now, they looked at 70,000 people who received non-renal transplants. And you can see, at 10 years post-transplant, the cumulative incidence of chronic renal failure for liver patients was about 30%. For lungs, it was about 25%, and for hearts, it was 20%. So this is not just a kidney transplant issue, this is an all-transplant issue. Looking at the treatment of hypertension with other allograft abnormalities, in a kidney patient, blood pressure not only um, provides a marker for how the graft is doing now, but it, it actually correlates with long-term outcomes. In this collaborative transplant study, OPALS looked at one, three, and five-year survival and found that it correlated quite well with their blood pressure coming out of the gate. So patients who have hypertension up front were not living as long as those whose hypertension was under control from the time of transplant. In kidney, depending, we have a few different treatment options. Depending on if it's stemming from the native kidneys or the transplanted kidney, how far out from transplant they are, what else is going on. Um, it could just be as simple as they need to offload fluid, and you could give them a diuretic, and that might take care of the problem. Usually that doesn't take care of it in the long run for kidney transplant patients, but that might be a reasonable place to start. If that doesn't seem to do the trick, calcium channel blockers, particularly dihydropyridine channel blockers, are an agent of choice due to their vasodilatory nature. We do use ACEs and ARBs when we can, especially for patients with proteinuria, which is in accordance with the JNC8 guidelines. Um, or if the proteinuria persists despite this, you can consider a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. But again, this is great to read on paper. The feasibility of being able to do this in a patient with a potassium of five due to their calcineurin inhibitor and lifelong, you know, back from prophylaxis after they had a toxoplasmosis experience might not be feasible. And that's where we run into a little bit of decision-making um, on our end. But they are options. They are not excluded because of the transplant with the exception of the age of the R timing post-transplant, clinicians will argue the correct time to start an ACE or an ARB in a kidney transplant patient weighing the um, risks and benefits of perfusion of the allograft. And there's no right answer and there's literature to support starting them right away versus waiting a few months. In terms of hypertension in liver transplant patients, hepatic failure is the number one cause of death leading to recurrent liver disease management. So when this happens, if you have something like um, uh, esophageal varices cropping up, we find ourselves leaning on the AASLD guidelines and almost going back to a pre-transplant state. In that case, you could look at something like propranolol or natalol, or if you do need more robust alpha blockade, carvedilol. But let's say it's someone who has hepatorenal. Well, then you probably want to get rid of the natalol as it's renally excreted, and these patients' renal functions tend to fluctuate 
rather quickly at that point. If they have an indication for an ACE or an ARB, absolutely consider starting one, but our preference would be toward non-prodrugs, such as lisinopril, versus starting something which would require activation, like an allopril. Oh, the heart, the heart, the heart. Um, the heart and hypertension is a very interesting thing. So pre-transplant, it's this rich innervation of sympathetic and parasympathetic control. With denervation of the allograft at the time of transplant, that regulation is kind of put on its head. And then you have this post-transplant sympathetic increase in activity, increase in adrenergic activity, and decrease in parasympathetic activity. Interestingly, the heart can re-innervate. Over 50% of hearts will re-innervate their sympathetic system over the course of the transplant. But less than 5% re-innervate that parasympathetic control. You get this unregulated SA node, and the resting heart rates tend to be around 90 to 100 over the long term. What this looks like for patients that you see in clinic, those who are living longer, surviving that infection rejection timeframe that we all focus on, is unfortunate myocyte apoptosis, remodeling, myocardial ischemia, impaired contraction, and an increased risk of cardiac death. If that's not enough, these patients are frequently asymptomatic because they don't have the nervous input to detect when they're having any kind of a MI picture. So they'll come in feeling unwell. And the clinicians will tell you that that's one of the clues that they know the heart has re-innervated is they start complaining of chest pain and they realize it's angina, whereas they wouldn't be experiencing that had the heart not had that re-innervation occur. So why do we care about that heart rate? Well, it's a predictor for coronary artery atherosclerosis and cardiac mortality in um, non-transplant patients. But there's no consensus on transplant patients, but it stands to reason that that may also be the case here. Atherogenesis um, is promoted via injury to the arterial wall, and then you eventually can get plaque rupture if it's not a concentric nearing like you have with CAV. You get, again, the frequent asymptomatic presentation, and it's this balance between oxygen delivery and oxygen consumption trying to make the body re-equilibrate in this new setting to make that more of an even match. Well, what do we do with this? Um, unfortunately, these are some of our sicker, sickest patients, I would argue, and frequently the hepatic and renal considerations that we've already discussed still apply, so don't forget those. Factor all those in here. But then, like the ACE and ARBs were the conundrum among the kidney transplant recipients, the beta blockers are the conundrum among the cardiac transplant re recipients, because the, the heart is so dependent on the beta stimulation and the catecholamines that are, that are cycling, there's a fear to block the beta receptors immediately post-transplant. Is it helpful, is it harmful? Well, maybe helpful in the long run, harmful up front. Okay, then what's the right time to start them? And these discussions are had at, um, at the major transplant meetings every year and in publications. We here at Mayo tend to avoid them immediately after transplant due to the risk of this, unless we really don't have other options. If it's just a run-of-the-mill patient with hypertension, and you're fortunate that they don't have these comorbidities. Again, a calcium channel blocker um, like amlodipine is kind of our go-to agent. Depending on the time since transplant, beta blockers or an ACE or an ARB may become increasingly feasible, both with re-innervation of the heart, time since transplant, body restabilization, and normaling of the potassium levels. One thing I would have you consider is the pill burden. You know, we've all seen these medication lists for transplant patients, and they can be a bit intimidating. What we see are the lists of the names, not the actual capsules and tablets they take. It's upwards of 30 to 40 a day 
for a lot of these patients. So adding on a hydralazine, one to two tabs, TID, can make a huge difference for this patient. If we can get away with doing some kind of a patch formulation or a once daily medication, but actually thinking about the feasibility of having them take these additional tablets at home. I hope I've not just overwhelmed you and made you thoroughly depressed. It's actually a very interesting patient population to work with, but if you're a black and white person, I'm very sorry, it's a gray area. So what I want to give you is tools to refer to, and again, kind of that logic to think about approaching treatment in these, in these patients. So depending on um, their regimen, both infectious disease and um, immunosuppressant, you're going to have a propensity towards certain side effects, and it will steer you away from some of the antihypertensive medications. I put those here in a table for you, uh, for your reference. Well, this brings us to our first uh, question. So if you want to respond on a computer, you can at polleb.com. Is that a forward slash? Sl slash MayoRx. You can do so on your phone to MayoRx to 22333, and then select your answer. Hyperkalemia is, among, is common among transplant patients. Which of the following medications commonly used in this patient population does not contribute to this issue, does not cause hyperkalemia? Cyclosporin modified, tacrolimus extended release, everolimus, or sulfamethoxazole, trimethoprim. All right, we seem to be stuck at the number of respondents, and you have all responded correctly. I was really hoping that you wouldn't be thrown by that extended release, but it wasn't a total curveball. It is available as an extended release in a couple different formulations, so that might be your thing that you learned for the day. But cyclosporin, tacrolimus, and sulfamethoxazoltrimethoprim all have renally uh, mediated mechanisms where potassium is actually retained and would cause hyperkalemia. Everolimus and serolimus are mTORs actually more prone toward hypokalemia than they are hyper, um, but certainly not one that we see causing great hyperkalemia. Well done. So we've talked enough about systemic vascular resistance and sodium resorption. Let's talk a little bit about hyperlipidemia. For those of you who have been had me as a preceptor, you know that I'm big on history, as is my counterpart, Chris. So bear with us while we get our little fix for the day. The history of hyperlipidemia in solid organ transplant um, was first reported in 1973 with a very high prevalence of between 50 and 80% among the kidney transplant population. Now that was a dyslipidemia. So keep in mind those aren't the same things, right? Dyslipidemia, the ratio may be off. It might not be high, but it's just off. Whereas hyperlipidemia would be high. Now this was in an azathioprine and corticosteroid area. So we think of this as a, as a calcineurin inhibitor issue, but it predated um, even that time. It wasn't until the 1980s when um, cyclosporin was introduced where you saw hypercholesterolemia. And then after 2000, when the mTORs got introduced, you saw the shift from hypercholesterolemia and bad LDLs over to high triglycerides. So the agent will determine which you end up with. The prevalence of hyperlipidemia in solid organ transplant is great, and it is definitely multivisceral with all organ groups falling victim to this and affecting their, their um, cardiovascular risk down the road. Now, what are some of the factors that are associated with this? Certainly dietary intake of uh, cholesterol and saturated fat, also exercise, so we want diet and exercise like we preach to everyone. But unfortunately, they have this 
virtually non-modifiable risk factor of medications, which also cause um, hyperlipidemia. So how does that happen? Depending on the medication, we can start with corticosteroids. They, they all affect it slightly different. Corticosteroids increase the VLDL, largely due to increased uptake of free fatty acids. They also can increase triglycerides because of reduced triglyceride clearance. They can alter LDL production because those VLDLs that you're, that you're producing are being shunted over to LDLs. And then you have increased activity of HMG-CoA reductase, which just has an overall greater cholesterol synthesis. Well, not everyone stays on those, but you're still not out of the clear because then you're probably on a calcineurin inhibitor. And there's an interference between the LDL cholesterol and receptor and a reduced number of receptors in total. So those two things attribute to a reduced LDL clearance. And interestingly, um, the lipophilicity of cyclosporin and tacrolimus is also such that there's evidence that they get transported into the core of the LDL cholesterol, and this potentially changes the molecular configuration of that LDL cholesterol, which can alter the feedback loop that actually regulates cholesterol synthesis. Uh, I think it's pretty cool. Cyclosporin is worse for that than tacrolimus, but neither is benign. mTORs, uh, again, are triglyceride agents, but they also do uh, affect LDL as well with reductions in LDL receptors. And actually, mTORs are rarely, if ever, used as monotherapy. They're typically used in combination with another agent. I mean, any agent is rarely used as monotherapy in transplant, but especially mTORs. So they're used as add-on. You're not only adding on these issues, but you're not getting away from the issues on the previous two slides to make this aggregate picture a little bit bleak in terms of your, your lipid regulation. Well, why do we care? Atherosclerosis, um, strokes, peripheral vascular disease, have all been shown to be detrimental to your cardiac risk in non-transplant settings, and we have no reason to believe that the transplant patient is any different. Additionally, we do have some studies which looked at organs specifically with kidneys. It was found that hypertriglyceridemia is associated with, with the progression of coronary artery calcification. In liver patients, hypertriglyceridemia and um, CBD were linked, and in heart, hypercholesterolemia was associated with non-major um, cardiac adverse events. What we don't know is, does this picture of having atherosclerosis and lipids floating around in your blood actually affect the allografts? We don't have a clear answer, but there's soft evidence to suggest it does. And I think you're gonna be hard pressed to find evidence to find that it is helpful. So why would we not want to treat? Our goal is to preserve and improve the allograft function and reduce their overall cardiovascular risk factor. The steps to treating these patients, consultation with a dietitian. This begins even pre-transplant in the clinic as you're being worked up from transplant to talk about diet and um, weight loss, exercise, if that applies. Exercise for those who are sick going into, into Transplant, rather, will go to some kind of rehab facility to try and work up to the exercise. Most herbal medications, it's something that we get asked a lot in clinics, something like red yeast. Um, we, we avoid them, particularly post-transplant. Either the drug interactions with the narrow therapeutic index drugs are unknown, they're disadvantageous to the patient, or it, it, it just rarely has a benefit. Usually, there's and they're unregulated, so, oh goodness, we've had some you know, everything from can I drink a half a cup of grapefruit juice a day every day if I only buy Minute Maid in the pink kind 
the answer is no if you really want to get into why, but we just try and avoid them as much as possible. That said, fish oil is, um, is okay with us. We're on board with that. Statins we do use as our mainstay of therapy, and they're considered safe if they are monitored and at the appropriate dose. And I draw your attention to the latter of the two because I think that's an area that we as a field can improve upon. What is that correct dose? Well, um, we don't usually have well-designed, robust PK studies with thousands of patients. We aren't cardiology, unfortunately. So we kind of have to go to the, the brass tacks at times and look at these agents and how are they metabolized um, in the gut and in the liver. And using these pieces of information and also the fact that we have neurotherapeutic index drugs whose levels can fluctuate and give us a clue of what's going on, try and piece together what's going to be the best for the patient. So I made this table for your reference. It's based on um, recommendations from the package insert, from pharmacokinetic studies, from case reports and case series of changes in AUC. And these would be the maximum doses of the statins with those concomitant agents. Typically, cyclosporin is the worst for interactions. Tacrolimus is also not benign. And interestingly, though the mTORs are also metabolized by 3A4, the reports are unclear, and at times it seems like the binding affinity of an mTOR may be greater than that of a statin because you get these reports of the mTOR levels going up when you start the statin, not vice versa, like we think with the calcineurin inhibitors. So with them, I would advise you to start low and go slow, monitor both the mTOR levels and um, a CK. Don't forget about those statins that require dose adjustment for CKD. And also, this is just use of immunosuppression. Inevitably, these patients are going to be on an azole, DILT, some other agent which has an interaction, so these numbers would need to go down even more for the max dose. This brings us to our second question. Statins are a mainstay of cholesterol control in transplant patients. Multidisciplinary assessment of a patient eight years after kidney transplant indicates that she qualifies for a high-dose statin regimen. The physician asks for your recommendation. Which of the following is or are needed to best advise? Their immunosuppression regimen, their distant historic infectious disease regimens, their renal function, A and C, immunosuppression regimen and renal function, or all the above, including distant history of um, infectious disease regimens. All right, we've exceeded our last total results. I'm gonna go ahead and say that we have a good showing. Um, no one chose A as that is definitely, uh, no, no one chose A alone, rather. Um, B is incorrect uh, because of the distant part. And I, I can hear someone making an argument that, yeah, if you had something like voriconazole with a long half-life, then it becomes nebulous. But the point is, if they had this months ago, it's, it's likely no longer relevant to this exact time in their picture from a pharmacokinetic standpoint regarding our statin choice. So I try to keep them distant, but um, if it's recent, then yes, or present. Immunosuppression regimen and renal function for sure. You would want to know um, what they're on in terms of your max dose with your mTOR or your statin. And then if it is one that requires um, renal adjustment, factor that into your decision as well. And E is wrong just because it includes B, which we discussed. All right, moving on last to just dabble in anticoagulation, focusing mostly on the direct oral anticoagulants and anoxaparin. So I don't know about you guys, but at this point, um, I kind of feel like anticoagulation, especially in transplants, kind of like rock and sock'em, and I might be aging myself here, but you got like warfarin in one corner, 
And then you got the Dolax in the other corner, and no one knows who's going to win, who's throwing the first punch. We certainly feel comfortable with our blue warfarin, but we're enticed by the red Dolax, and how nice it is to just be able to give them a pill and forget. We shouldn't do that, but you know what I mean. <laughs> they don't require monitoring. This topic gets discussed in transplant work groups and blogs and meetings, and we still don't have a great answer. So what I want to give to you is the thought processes or the tools that people use to argue their point, truthfully, regarding these agents. So first, let's look at the metabolism, right? Because we have neurotherapeutic index immunosuppression with toxic side effects, so we don't want to be dabbling in that as much as possible. Well, rivaroxaban, apixaban, and doxaban are all 3A4 metabolized. Rivaroxaban additionally is 3A5 metabolized, which is our main pathway for tacrolimus. So we would like to avoid that if possible. We talked about how these patients are sick. They frequently have concomitant hepatic disease or renal issues coming into transplant. And if they don't, they might get them because of their need for infectious disease prophylaxis or um, even their immunosuppression can cause some degree of, of um, hepatic dysfunction. So wanting to avoid things that are a child puke class B would be advisable. Um, so there you kind of now leaning toward, well, maybe a pixaban or dabigatran. But then you factor in the kidneys and the fact that dabigatran and rivaroxaban are pretty staunch in the level which you would consi not consider using them anymore with renal dysfunction. And a lot of transplant patients live in this region because of the calcineurin inhibitors or because, you know, they had heart failure, which caused the kidneys to take a hit because of hypoperfusion. Then you enter the nebulous world of PGP inhibition, and you get these qualifying words like PGP inhibitor, moderate inhibitor, strong inhibitor. No one really knows what these mean, and we certainly don't know how tacrolimus plays into the factor. It, it arguably might vary between patients. We don't know. But all of these things in totality kind of make me, and I'm the presenter so I get to say my two cents, <laughs> kind of make me lean toward a fixaban. Um, just because we actually have data with patients going to dialysis. So even in the worst renal settings, we have data to support their safety. Additionally, they're a child pew class C, not B, so a bit better. And they do have dosing recommendations uh, with the PGP inhibitors. So strong, moderate, what have you, we don't know, but at least there's something. Um, a 2.5 BID regimen might be considered Moving on to anoxaparin, just a touch at the end. Um, publications in solid organ transplant demonstrate a prudence in a 20 to 25% dose reduction of anoxaparin. This was first published by Singer et al. with a 67% supertherapeutic anti-10A rate at one mg per kg of anoxaparin BID in lung transplant patients. This was further supported when we looked at multiple organs by Moten et al. and 40% had a supertherapeutic anti-10A despite a 20% dose reduction in baseline in the majority of those patients. Sofian again reiterated what Singer had found, but this time we're going, okay, so the levels are high, but does that actually correlate to a meaningful outcome? What's happening? They're at greater risk for bleed, but are the bleeds happening? And in this patient group, they unfortunately did with a 15% incidence of a bleeding event, half of which were considered as major, and that was a hemoglobin drop of two, an intracranial bleed, need for transfusion. So it was a, a reasonable endpoint. Where does this lead us? Consider, and I use the word consider because it's going to vary from patient to patient, but consider empirically dose-reducing your anoxaparin if you have a transplant patient. Um, 0.8 mg per kg sub-QQ12 for a twice-daily regimen or somewhere closer to 1 mg per kg if it's a Q24. And 
irrespective of how you decide to approach this when you weigh the risk-benefit of dose-reducing versus full dose, check a four-hour post-dose anti-10A peak just to see how you're doing. And if it's going to be in for the long run, if they're going to be on it for months, you might want to check one later on down the road and watch the renal function, of course. Um, once you get that result, look at, you know, I would advise those to look at their renal function, see how it's trending. It does follow fairly linear kinetics, so you can use that tool to kind of work your way to the middle of the anti-10A goal ranges. And don't forget to look at syringe availability. And if you're between doses, weigh in the risk-benefit for that patient. Also factor in the dexterity of the caregiver or the person who will be administering this shot. I don't know if you guys have played with these, but they're spring-loaded and they're quite difficult to waste a small volume, I would dare say so accurately. I'm a pharmacist and I've tried to do this and I had a pretty hard time and I, I consider myself fairly dexterous on most days with limited caffeine. Um, you know, really think how feasible it is for that patient of having them, you know, say get 100 and waste 10, because it might not be the best choice for everyone. In conclusion, the take-home piece is, um, again, the scaffolding to think of and approach these patients. With hypertension, think about their comorbidities, think about their drug interactions, think about what kind of organ they got, where they are post-transplant, what could be causing driving this hypertension when you choose your antihypertensive um, regimen. Hyperlipidemia, we have no robust dyslipidemia guideline for transplant. Consider the desired statin intensity that you want. And then you're going to have to look for max dosing recommendations, drug interactions, AUC reports from pharmacokinetic data. And oftentimes I find it relatable to the physicians to say something like, you know, I recommend no more than 5 milligrams of Crestor as this would be equivalent to a 20 milligram dose with that AUC in a patient who wasn't on this medication. And the DOACs, they're still new in transplant. We certainly need additional studies in kinetic and clinical data. But apixaban might professionally have the leg up right now, especially if they're in it for the long haul and you're going to have fluctuations in renal function, etc. This brings us to our last question. You were consulted to start warfarin and dose bridging anoxaparin for a 39-year-old male liver transplant patient four years out from transplant. They have, the indication is DBT, they weigh 100 kilograms, the baseline serum creatinine is 1.2, their current is 1.4, which calculates out to a clearance of 46. All of the labs are within normal limits. A transplant literature-based dosing of this patient would be anoxaparin 100 sub-QBID as dosing adjustment occurs below a creatinine clearance of 30 mils per minute. All right, it's quick, but everyone was correct. Yes, this was the take-home point. I find this interesting, not only in transplant, but all patient populations. The dose adjusted at 30, but if it's 35, do we still do full dose? I mean, nothing magic happens at 30. It's on a spectrum. And so we might want to check earlier and factor that into our decision. But yes, surely in a transplant patient, that is something that may be considered prudent to do. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.